This is the Blue Box Podcast. Over the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. My name's JR. Hello, my name's Lee. Hi, I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Mark. And, uh, well, we've got a couple of emails to read out. Well, uh, a couple of things from the Twitter feed, actually. Oh, Jenny, also known as Blue Box 99 We like Jenny, don't we, lads? She's Indeed. always saying Great. nice things about us. Uh, she's written to us, well, this is a couple of tweets. It's a fab podcast, she says. Hurrah. Is she talking about our podcast, though? I think she, she is, is, isn't she? I hope so. She says, it's a great listen and very relaxed. I like the conversations you all have. It's like you're sitting in a living room discussing things. <laughs> which makes me chuckle because we're actually sitting in, a living, sitting in a living room discussing room. things. <laughs> it's a relaxed atmosphere, she says. I really enjoy listening to you all each week. A fab podcast. Who's left their mobile on? Thank you. Somebody that, that's me, on? yeah. Sorry, let me just turn that off. Can I do that live? You carry on. Yeah, I think you've done it. Okay, somebody Thank called... You, Jenny. Yes, absolutely. Somebody called Dash Boxer, whose real name is Damien Ashley, has said, love the Blue Box podcast. That's definitely about ours, isn't it? Feel terrible for not even realising Starburst is back. I've read it for years. Or I did read it for years. Anyway, well done all, he says. And here's the one. Thank you, Damien, by the way. Yes, thank you to everybody who writes in. We don't get many, so that's why (laughs) once every seven podcasts we can read out three messages. (laughs) So even if you don't like us, just write and tell us what you think. And we'll just describe it to one of the other podcasts in the arena. <laughs> Gary Davison, who got in touch via Twitter, but has actually sent us an email as well. And this is quite a long email, but it's worth reading out. I think this is a great email, actually. My breath is good. Hello, chaps. Pleased to say the sound on the podcast is much improved, even for my poor old ears. Yes. And that what's being said is worth listening to. Yep, we've got Simon to thank for that. Our first three podcasts, if you've been with us since the start, our first three podcasts were left a little bit to be desired. But as soon as Simon came in, they've improved tenfold. I'm a long-term Who fan, says Gary. My earliest memories of the programme are the discovery of an invisible Dalek at the end of part one of Planet of the Daleks, <laughs> which is, as you'll have realised by yeah. now, almost exactly the same as my first memory, except mine yeah. was from episode six. But same story, brilliant. Uh, did, you write, s- did you write this? Planet email? Friend. Oh, <laughs> As if I'd write an email to my own show pretending to be somebody else. (laughs) Honest to God. Gary goes on to say he also remembers the giant spider on Sarah Jane's back and the chanting that summoned it and that at the time, terrifyingly realistic dinosaurs in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. (laughs) He says to entertain really need to give that story the special edition treatment they gave to Day of the Daleks. Yeah. Sadly, there's not the budget for that. 
There will be one day. Maybe. Fingers crossed. Watched all through Tom Baker and Peter Davison's tenors, and then on and off until the show was cancelled. Have enjoyed New Who since its return, but have found the online community and forums far from friendly, uh, to the extent that it started to spoil his enjoyment of the show. And so now he only shares his love of the show with a few friends and his long-suffering family. And that's, does. I've got to say, that's a bit. That's a shame, actually, that he's yeah. had that experience. Because, you know... If you're going to love a show that much, guys, just big it up and have fun. Don't have I to think be hateful and nasty. I think it's a, a truism, though, that you get a lot of Doctor Who fans together and they all come together because of their love of the show. But it's what do you talk about? And, you know, you say, I love the show. And that's, you know, four words. And once you've said that, you've not really got anything to, else to say on that score. Wow. And it always does get down to bickering in the end. And that's, that's, like, that's like going on, you know, on holiday in a caravan with your family. Yeah, I for don't, nine years exactly. I don't think people plan for that to happen, but that's just what it seems to come and down also, to. I think because of the show, it is you can have some people who rave about one episode, and somebody else is going to hate it, and it just oh, it's, yeah. it's yeah. going to start those sorts of. But arguments. that's that is the beauty. It's just a respect. I think you just hmm. have respect for each other's views. So if he's had a bad experience, it's a it's a shame. Yeah, sadly, it's all too common, though. I'm afraid. Anyway, let's move on. Um, he says he wants to share his theory about the pond's imminent departure oh, in yeah. series seven, episode five. Based on, he says, nothing but the images posted on Twitter, comments by cast and crew, and a smidgen of imagination. <laughs> and this is the bit I really wanted to share, because I shared my theory a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. And I have heard from somebody who knows about this sort of thing. Not somebody on the inside, obviously, but somebody who's just up with all the speculation and all the spoilers and what have you, the kind of thing that I try and avoid as much as possible, but I have heard that my theory is unlikely to be correct. So, here we are presenting Gary Davison's theory, right? Go. which is not the same as mine, and therefore yeah. is more likely to be correct. So he definitely isn't you then? No, he's definitely not me. <laughs> right, here he starts. The Weeping Angels in this episode are the scavengers trapped by the Tenth Doctor in Blink. The angels have been found and sold as a piece of art to a New York dealer. The four are moved and so aren't looking at each other anymore and Blind. can move again. Oh, yeah, I like it. Riversong, fi Riversong finds out, tries to stop them, but is zapped back to the 1950s by the touch of an angel. Our heroes finally get River's message and are also zapped back to 1950s New York without the TARDIS. 30 minutes and an awful lot of running later, the Doctor and the Ponds are split up. Perhaps the Doctor must leave the ponds in order to defeat the angels. They're split up somehow, anyway. On the promise, he'll come straight back for them. But Amy again becomes the girl who waited. In other words, the Doctor doesn't find them. Or doesn't find Amy, at the very least. We cut to the present day. River finds the Doctor, who has spent years searching for Amy and Rory to no avail, and takes him to her mother's bedside... Amy Pond, in her 80s, having lived a long, happy and successful life as a model in New York with Rory, and Amy dies after having seen her raggedy man one more time. A real death, but not a tragic one, and a chance for a final memorable scene between Matt Smith and Karen Gillan. And you know what? I think that sounds like it has the ring of yeah, possibility about it. That <clears> sounds <throat> yeah. like exactly mm. the kind of thing that Stephen Moffat... I mean, some of those scenes are... Not beat for beat, but, you know, evoking exactly the same emotions that Stephen Moffat might brought do. to Blink. Yeah, mm. he, yeah. Might, he might do that. Yeah, so I imagine. think... There are, I mean, there's a few things, obviously, with uh, him not being able to find 
Amy. Yeah, well, you know, if she becomes up in New York, yeah, I mean, if you, if she became a successful model, you'd find her, wouldn't you? But I mean, well, yeah, but uh, I do like the idea that he finally discovers her, and she is old. Yeah, and she's lived a, a good exactly life. like she did oh, yeah. with can't remember the character's name in Blink. Yeah, yes, the yeah. scene with the rain. Yeah, yeah, a beautiful piece of television. That would be a rewrite of Blink, though, wouldn't it? It would be, but this. Re- Stephen Moffat's got no problem with rewriting things. He does his little wibbly wobbly thing all the time. Mm. <laughs> I am not saying it's a problem. All writers have their familiar tropes that they come back to. Yeah, yeah. And I don't see it as being a problem, particularly as the first time the character who was in the bed with the rain outside the window was somebody we barely knew. Mm. This is somebody we've invested two and a half years in. Yeah. So I don't see it as a problem if it is that. I just think it's a really nice idea. And, you know, I think it's about as realistic an idea as I can imagine. And up until the episode actually goes out, I can't see it being wrong. I like it. But why, you know, when the angels touch you, why so little a time? Why don't you just throw it back to the Stone Age? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, to the beginning of of when the dinosaurs were on the planet. And maybe her and Adric can get it on. Well, possibly. The angels... You know, is this throwing... becoming a competition to fit? Yeah, maybe. In Obviously, it takes energy to throw people back, yeah. so that you can live off the energy that they leave behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but... the further you throw them, presumably, yeah. the more energy it takes. So they probably just give them a little to be nudge, on... yeah. and they go back. Well, for to be years. honest, if the angels have been watching the series the last two and a half years, they'll get a gang of them just to send Amy back as far as they can for a bit of a laugh. Oh. <laughs> That's a bit of uh, that's a bit of commentary from Lee there. Bony contention. <laughs> we shan't talk about the bony contention. We are obviously sponsored by Starburst magazine, Indeed. and our theme is by Wesley Smith. Thank you, Wesley. Fantastic bloke. Is he? Amazing things coming. Are there? Yeah, he's done all the uh, soundscapes and what have you for uh, you know those all those things that I've had in the works. Mm. Anyway, we should get yeah, to yeah, our yeah. topic. For you, the can't, week, you can't, you can't talk secrecy on a podcast. It's not secrecy. His... The audio play I wrote. That's what I'm asking. What it's I was JR talking. All industries, isn't it? You know, <laughs> one week is the book. <laughs> next week it's the audio play. What's it going to be next? DVD. You got a DVD. You sounded like Ernie Wise then. The play what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the way this conversation's going. We're here to advertise me, guys. <laughs> I've got, I've got the T-shirt of you. Actually, it's pretty good. What? Have you actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who well, shot s- JR? <laughs> oh, I don't think that's ever been said, do you? I um, heart JR. Yeah. That's the one I've got. No, it's a picture of you in the that's sofa with, mug, your, with your legs slightly open, just relaxing. <laughs> anyway, shall we move on to the uh, yeah. subject? And in clothes, to- sorry. Where, 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 anyway, what were we talking talk- Well, you know, there's going back to when the series very first started... This is hard to do now because these three guys are pulling faces at each other across these three microphones in front of me. Going back to when the series very first started, the original concept was there would be alternating stories between those that went back into history, those that went forward into the future or to alien planets, and those that went sideways and got all conceptual. And when Russell T. Davis brought the series back, he did very much the same thing. Mm. He alternated between stories set in history Stories set in the future or on alien planets. By the time he got to the second series, anyway, they were alien planets. And the third alternative he did, rather than conceptual stories, was stories set in the present day, which was obviously back at the time of Ian Barbara, something that the original series couldn't do. So both the original series and the new series have started with a very defined format of three different types of stories alternating. 
Well, I thought it'd be a nice thing for us to do on the podcast to sort of concentrate on those different avenues that the series took and examine sort of where they came from, the ideas, how those ideas developed and how those different concepts changed over the years, how their historical stories, for instance, went from their very original caveman setting in the very first story to eventually the situation whereby you'd get to something like City of Death, which is mostly set in the modern day, and then the Doctor just takes two trips back into history, one where he goes to meet Leonardo da Vinci, drops the name, doesn't even meet the guy, and then, you know, an episode and a half later, he's back in the Stone Age again, or, you know, not even back in the Stone Age, back mm. right back at the very beginning of life on planet Earth. You know, we've gone from stories where they took the history very seriously, and Doctor Who was supposed to be an educational conduit. Possibly for... echoing the curriculum at the time, maybe. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the Aztecs was apparently, according to things I've read, quite a big topic for history classes in the mm. 60s, and Marco Polo almost certainly would have been. You know, and then we get to a point where going back into history is just a little in-joke for the writer to throw into a script. Yeah. Kids have got horrible histories now, haven't they? Oh, they yeah. do, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is kids, Simon. Yeah, <laughs> horrible histories is fantastic. It is ace. If you haven't seen it as an adult, the songs are brilliant as well. Just watch it. It's the great. mummy song is particularly good. Get on eBay yeah. and pick up a DVD. It's one of the few CBBC CBBC things that's on DVD. They've not released much of their content on DVD at all. But no, even even the books though. Is... If you're into into history, oh yeah, we've got um, they're really very good. Yeah. You know. Anyway, back onto the subject of Doctor Who. Yeah. Right. I mean, anybody want to throw an opinion now on Anne and Earthly Child? Is Anne and Earthly Child even an historical? Um, are we talking the first episode plus no, the no, three? No, 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 no. The three. The three the that three. follow the first. Oh, yeah. Well, it is. It's history, isn't it? It's Stone Age. Well, it's, it's prior so... to history, isn't it? it it's history. Is it's it a earth, prehistorical? Oh, well, it depends on what you... Do you mean history as in is it recorded history? history? Recorded, yeah. written history. It's prior to people starting to record things. Well, well, would you say cave paintings? paintings yes, uh, Yeah, absolutely. well, that's what I was Thank you, Simon. To. Yes, it's recorded histories. <laughs> right, so... <laughs> well, so this is what I was getting at. Yeah. So, Ananef, well, the Tribe of Gum segment yeah, of yeah. Ananef. I mean, I think that's a brilliant conceit, actually. With the first episode, they finish with a cliffhanger where actually it looks like, for all the world, an alien planet. Yes. And then the start of the very next episode, they find out they're still on Earth, and the audience at home breathes a collective sigh of relief. Thank goodness, because that was going to be really scary. And actually, the story that unfolds then is probably even scarier than it would have been had it been an alien planet. It is actually more scary because it's just, you know, humans being animalistic yeah and you cannot trust the guys you know the, the, there's a lot of violence in that there's a lot of stonings and i think william hartnell even yes. is about to yeah. crack somebody over with a stone isn't he or does yeah he do? no he does yeah he oh, does there's a yeah. fight he sequence do where um yeah. did they not take a sound effect out of one of the sequences right. in, a, yeah. in episode th no episode four it must uh, be as well yeah, i'm sure it's a head cracking sound doc camfield's first bit of direction actually the film sequence of that fight in episode four really of, uh, and an earthly child, yeah. Mm, that sounds about right for Doug Canfield. Yeah, it's the sound yeah. of, yeah. And did you spot Amy as well, as the old hack? <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> is 
just to sort of bring it down to sort of more mundane things, if you can call it more mundane things, do, do we like the first story? Because it doesn't get as much attention as a lot of the other, you know, the Dalek stories and what have you. It's, it, it, it kind of feels like it's one of those boxes that's ticked. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's, do you there's... think so, really, though? Yeah. <sighs> It's laying out the characters a bit, isn't it? It's, it's given. It's also shock value. It's it's going as far back as they possibly can make it. To you know, if they'd have gone any, any further, they couldn't have a story. You have to have some human involvement. Yeah. So they had to go back. They went all the way back in time to Stone Age. Like, wow, this box can really travel in time, man. I mean, if they'd have gone exactly. back to the nineteen forties, it would have been quite yeah. so impressive. In a way, they're showing off. Yeah. Not the Doctor showing off because obviously he's got no control. But in a way, the series is showing off. Mm. They're laying down like a challenge to themselves. This is what we can do as far as we can go. And, you know, the rest of the authors who come in after that have that gauntlet laid down and they have to prove that they can do something as interesting or as exciting as what they've done in that first story. But this is why I try and bring up Mark, the tribe of gums that everybody knows that first episode is an absolute classic, but the Mm -hmm. tribe of gum segment that follows those three episodes generally ignored yeah, I think when I kind of dig through my DVD back catalogue and occasionally I will watch An Unearthly Child, it's rare I go past the first episode. I really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. See, I absolutely love those three episodes that follow. Mm. I think that's an amazing piece of television. I think to have done that in a tiny little studio yeah. and in to have sort of... Rec- and they didn't just recreate sort of cave interiors, but, the, you know, there's bits of forest and everything else as well. I just think it's astonishing. That felt like tea time telly, actually, of of the age. I can imagine people sitting down eating their Frey Bentos, watching that. Did they have Frey Bentos in 1963? (laughs) They probably did. I think they probably did. I think we're learning a little bit too much about Mark's family history now. (laughs) The mug of Bovril. about Lee's. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Mark. Um, No, uh, yeah, no, I think it makes great tea time telly. I mean, there isn't a lot of plot there, is there? I mean, there's not a lot of characterization no. necessarily <clears throat> it's, it's a feeling it gives you an idea of what they can do with the TARDIS it's only until we get to Marco Polo where they really start um, you know yeah, writing like strong next, characters isn't it? at first they take their historicals really yeah. seriously you've got two scripts two sets of scripts by John Lucarotti Marco Polo and the Aztecs and although there is a little bit of humour in there mm. I mean the most people will know the Aztecs far better than Marco Polo, which is lost. And, yeah. of course, you've got the bit where the Doctor accidentally gets engaged. But the rest of that story is pretty darn serious. You get the impression it's quite dry and it's, it's you're kind of yeah. almost waiting for the narrator to come on and start sort of describing what's... I know. think the problem with, Mar- uh, with the Aztecs as well is it's very staged. It feels very proscenium arch. Mm. There's a few film segments with Ian and possibly also Susan, but I think... It is a very dry story. Mm. Well, Aztecs. Yeah, do you not think? No, I th- I, I really enjoyed the Aztecs. I thought it was oh, quite. I, like I thought it. it was quite colourful, and I thought there was a, a bit of fun in there. I mean, Ian Chesterton kicks butt somewhat by throwing people off towers. And well, he does. I like that. But I mean, it all takes itself very seriously. Um, it. I think it takes the idea of trying to change history uh, seriously, and it should do because it's it's quite a good concept to bring in early on in that time travel. You know, do you think they got that idea right? In what way? What do you mean? Well, do you think that they should have said from the off, we can't change history? Um, or, do yeah, you think, well, or do you think it should have been, we shouldn't change history? Yeah. Because that's what it t- developed into. Mm. If you say we can't change history, you've written yeah. yourself into a blind alley. Actually, I think what it was is that she wanted to change history, but it wouldn't have made any difference, whatever it is she did. 
because the you know the society was too big. It was bigger than just one person. Maybe, trying to but I think it. what John Lugarotti is saying in his script is the TARDIS travellers can't. I don't think he's saying it shouldn't, wouldn't, mm. won't. I think he's saying can't. Well, we all know that time can be rewritten. So, well, we know that now. You can't <laughs> retcon. I don't like to retcon when we talk about these episodes. At the time, the Aztecs and Marco Polo were written. I am convinced that what the people making the program were saying yeah. is that you can't rewrite history. History is set absolutely yeah. in stone. And if you're going to turn up in history, you can only watch it unfold. And what I'm saying is yeah. that's a real blind alley to stick your series in right at the start. But that is the Time Lord's code, non-interference. <sighs> Again, you are Time Lord. I'm turning my back on Lee and talking to Mark <laughs> instead now. So do you think they applied that as far as believability was concerned then? That people would believe they've been into the past because they, they were leaving things as they should be? Oh, I don't know. That's something I hadn't thought about. Go mm. on, say more. Well, as in... It's far more. It's far easier to believe that they went into the past and if and they didn't left... change anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I suppose so. I suppose I don't think they had a plan to sort of change the way they looked at their historical stories later, though. I think they just went into. I'm, I'm convinced I mean, they just went be, into the program. It might be part of the factual thing that they wanted to keep it. Yeah, wanted yeah. to just demonstrate history to the children watching at home, and so. All they would do is throw those four people in the blue box into a historical setting with, oh, by and large, a famous person who the children at home would be expected to know something about or would be expected to want to know something about or learn something about later, but would, would be aware of, like Robespierre and uh, Marco Polo himself, of course, Kublai Khan. Yeah. yeah. So very dry... I just think very dry those very early historians. They they were they were very dry. Um, I think if you can't change anything, it takes the jeopardy out to a certain extent. Yes and no. I mean, you can have uh, local stories, can't you? You know what I mean. Within yeah. the concept of uh, context, rather of of what's going on around you, like in the Romans, you know, they're they're slave, sold as slaves, blah blah blah. They end up with Nero for about three seconds, um, and. Uh, you know, Rome's possibly burnt down. So, well, but they're not. What, they're, they're never, what I mean is, they're never going to be remembered yeah. in history as all those strange people with the blue box. In the Aztecs, it was such a large thing where she was trying to change an entire society, a culture, a culture. Yeah. That's when he was saying, "No, no, you can't. You really can't do this." But we can just mingle with the crowd and get into scrapes. La la la. Well, well, obviously <laughs> the Romans is where I was aiming to get to. But first, I think the. I mean, the first, because what I wanted to do with this episode was look at the important stories that sort of turned the course of the program's nature with its historical settings. And I think the first one, <clears throat> the first obvious one is the Romans. Mm. But the first one actually is the Reign of Terror, the one that Dennis Spooner first wrote. Because Dennis Spooner, he brings a little bit of humour into his storytelling and I'm not just talking in terms of on-screen comedy, but he's got also a very black vein of humour. It's a lot more apparent when Donald Cotton starts writing stories, the myth-makers and the gunfighters. But I think it's Dennis Spooner who injected that into the programme, you know, on the whole, because Dennis Spooner became the story editor straight after this, taken over from David Whittaker. But I think Reign of Terror is the first time you get a historical, and historical story where the TARDIS crew can and do get involved because the final episode of that, they are 
not instrumental in, but the sort of Robespierre, all that sort of thing, and Bonaparte. They're there at the, you know, the beginning of his ascent. And it's dead. And, okay, they are witnesses, but they have been involved in the intrigue that gets the story to that point. Which makes it is a good story as well. I think. I, oh, I think it's it. a fantastic story. Yeah, and they're not messing around with major characters like Churchill, for instance, and people that are that hugely. Lee, well-known. you're getting way ahead of yourself, aren't you? Yeah, I know, but um, <laughs> you know, this uh, we're not living in the past. We can <laughs> go to the future and say, okay. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is that I, I like these stories better than say when, where we're going which is into the future in a minute, um, whereby they are just having a, a bit of a laugh and there's a central part. And there is some tension there. People are, are in danger properly in the past. You know, if either of us went in the past, we'd find ourselves in danger instantly oh, just by what, what we're Romans, wearing. <laughs> this is what the Romans does as well, of course. Yeah. They're, the Romans is regarded as Doctor Who's first comedy, but it's not that much funnier than The Reign of Terror. No. I mean, there's some very funny bits in it's The Reign a, of Terror. Is, yeah. And the peril in The Romans is every bit as perilous as yeah. in any Slavery, of Slavery, poison, rape, possible murder. There's in the, the moment where William Hartnell's running around being chased by... Is he being chased by a, an a assassin? A boy, isn't it? Oh, no, no, the... Uh, or something. Yeah, the uh, when he's pretending to be the, oh, wait, the, the assassin wants to kill the liar player. And, okay, so in in reality, you have got an assassin in Rome who's trying to kill you, right? If it was I Claudius, it'd be a serious piece of film work. Here, it's Carry On Cleo. He's running around <laughs> going, oh, oh, mm, mm, oh, and the, you know. But at the same time, Ian's been sold into slavery. Yeah. Barbara's been sold into slavery. Ian goes off to fight tigers in the yeah, good old Ian <laughs> or lions or whatever in the uh, you know. Uh, amphitheatres, and then Barbara's off being sold as a sex slave to the Emperor of Rome. Dear me. It, ter- oh. Terrible. <laughs> Have you seen this Roman Siren? Do you know what? No. I've, I've never seen it, no. Are we going you beyond your sort of can at the moment? <clears throat> yeah. Would you, okay, let me, let, let me put my uh, viewpoint on historicals, which is that if I'm honest, I've always had a disinterest in them from an early age purely because i've I've found not so much history boring but without the sci-fi element i've always thought oh uh, no no well this brings us on to later yeah. on obviously um but the fact is that as and when i have concentrated on a historical story i've really enjoyed it they are the best of the black and white stories it's like stew i never look forward to eating stew when you were a kid <laughs> yeah but then when i do i absolutely love it oh right, right. really yeah. yes who's stew anyway uh <laughs> We've. <laughs> I'm sorry. Foul and disgusting. <laughs> of course I am. Um, Dumplings. Mm. Uh, doesn't that bring us tidily up to uh, the time meddler then? Yeah, exactly what Simon was saying. You you introduce a science fiction element into the historical story, and you've got well, I mean, this is what Doctor Who fans on mass regard as an entirely new, <clears throat> as an entirely new. What's the word I'm looking for? Type of story, an entirely new genre of story within the series, which is the pseudo-historical, as they call them, which is a historical setting with a science fiction element beyond that which you get with the You've got a little bit of the chase that came before that, haven't you? Well, the chase is not an historical story. It's just a story that happens to feature a couple of vaguely historical settings for a very brief period of time. It's worth watching just to see the Dalek go off the uh, Mary Celeste. Actually, <laughs> apart from the Mary Celeste, is there an historical setting in the chase? Uh, I seem to remember, wasn't there something with the pyramids? 
Or did I imagine that? No, that's Dalek's master plan. Is it? I think it's just the Mary's Well, actually, Dalek's master plan in the chase. Terry Nation writing essentially the same story twice in succession. Like he's ever done that since. Well, yeah. But yeah, chase, marry Celeste. And of course, there's the haunted house bit. Which I always yeah that's future I know that's it in the future but you know what when my, when I watch the chase when that bit comes on my brain always triggers into historical mode yeah it's just something oh, the haunted Until house and I keep going you know turn of the nineteenth twentieth century or back even slightly further but you know I'm until the at, hokey Frankenstein walks out yeah <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great but you know even the Universal Dracula was nineteen thirty one or th- and, um, that's where my mm. brain goes to sort of back that far and beyond and then of course it's the festival of ghana in like 2050 or something you know we're only five years away from blade runner now are we just thought i'd throw that in randomly can't wait the time meddler (laughs) well the time meddler is one of those stories it's epochal in the development of doctor who isn't it it's not just a historical setting with a science fiction element it's the first time we meet another member of the Doctor's race. Yeah. It's absolutely massive. And that third cliffhanger, you know, people always talk about cliffhangers and you always get asked, what are your favourite cliffhangers? And everybody always says, you know, during the Hartnells, the third one where they open the sarcophagus, whatever it is. And it's a tarnish. And see inside. Do you know what, though? The first cliffhanger is the one that I really love in that story. Where he just, he, he hears the monk singing. So he walks up to the monastery. He opens the door to the monastery. There's uh. no monks there, but he knows he's in the 11th century. There's a, just a record player, and the voices <laughs> he can hear are coming oh, out yeah. of the speaker. Yeah. yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That's really good. Oh, that's yeah. just one of those cliffhangers that, I mean, yeah. everybody comes to that story now, knowing what the story's going to be. When that was repeated, um, it was on B- Sky B or something like that. I think they... That was repeated on the BBC when they found it Oh, was it? it? I can't remember. Yeah. Some, somebody had uh, was was doing the introduction and totally spoiled it by saying, and he meets somebody from his, his race. Oh. And, and I was thinking, okay, thanks yeah, for thanks that. For you that. know, Completely yeah. spoiled the whole... Because I'd never seen it or even read it at that point. So, I think I knew from having seen the Doctor mm. Who Weekly with the archive and then... And you know, yeah, by yeah. that point, it was already quiet. But you're right, this is a super important um, moment for Doctor Who. In Doctor Who, But yeah. it's a very quiet introduction for this uh, concept. Well, it's this really laid-back story. It's yeah. got a really chilled atmosphere, and <laughs> it's just quite low-key. It just really is very low-key. And the story sort of meanders about a bit and doesn't particularly get anywhere fast. And ostensibly, it's about a Viking invasion that um, is going to cause the um, Norman invasion to be successful because the English forces are off fighting Vikings mm-hmm. in another part of the country. And you never really get to see the Vikings all that much. And, of course, you never see the Normans landing in Hastings and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, basically, all you really get is the Doctor and a couple of companions wandering around on a beach and up by a monastery, and that's about it, really. It is a bizarre idea, because he's the meddling monk, okay? That's what he's known as. And yeah. it, it suits this story. And then you see him later, he comes back... Uh, in three in Dalek, uh, Yeah, as the meddling monk again. Yeah. So he's always been a meddling monk, in fact. <laughs> from, from, from the Time Lord Academy, he wore his monk's cowl in class. <clears throat> you kind of think, that guy's a bit of a weirdo. He's, oh, what do you call it? Oh, I call myself the meddling monk. It's and off funny, he goes. Actually, when they did what? the master, obviously they said the doctor is a... Um, yeah, he chose the name. Well, they, they, they took them from university. I think it was specifically university that they looked at. 
and titles of people who would work in a university, doctor would be one, master would be another. And then, you know, it's like... Corsair. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like the Barry Letts and Terence Sticks tried to get this thing, tried to create a convention whereby Time Lords would be named after university professors. But, you know, history already shows that the very first one was the meddling monk. And, you know, last time mm. I was at Oxford University... And I have actually visited, guys. There weren't any meddling monks there. Was there anybody called Drax? <laughs> no, nor was there anybody <laughs> called the Rani either. <laughs> I, like I like the idea, though, that there's, there's all these little characters that just go around almost like in fancy dress or something like that. Yeah, messing around with time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like when I accepted in... it completely when I read about it. Yeah, of course it. you do. Yeah, Time yeah. Lord's coming of age party. They don't get given the keys to a Porsche or whatever. They just get <laughs> a handle. <laughs> Your handle is the master. Somewhere there's a time lord called the milkman. <laughs> uh, there is, yeah, no doubt. In fact, John Pertwee in uh, the Green Death, he yeah. was a time lord oh, called yeah. the milkman. Yeah, all yeah. the, the cleaner. Milk lady or yeah, yeah. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. What's your name? Oh, mine's the cleaning lady. <laughs> what a bummer. Actually, have you not seen Leon or Leon? Yeah. The cleaner could be quite a fancy the name. Cleaner. Like, Hello, I'm the cleaner. cleaner. I made a clean. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great character. Anyway, that's another podcast. So, <laughs> so where are we going from here, from the time meddler? Well, actually, that? the next thing after the time meddlers and myth makers, and that completely opens the door for mm. the Doctor Who historical stories to be anything. Yeah. Funny. Yeah, not just funny, but to mess around with history. The most important thing with Mythmakers wasn't how funny it was, but how far it was prepared to go in rewriting history to be entertaining for an audience rather than to be realistic for an audience. Up until, up until that point, even the time meddler was giving you a lot of historical background and teaching you things about 1066, mm. things that I've just stomped all over by getting loads of facts wrong when talking about it. <laughs> By not having watched it recently, but you get my point. Up until the time meddler, you're still learning about history through the historical stories they're presenting on Doctor Who, and then the Mythmakers comes along and just blows the doors off. Well, it's got the it's got the horse. It's the fall of Troy, isn't it? You get the... yeah. You do. You have all the stuff that the kids already know. Yeah. But instead of giving them more background, instead you're just completely taking the Mickey out of these characters. Really. Uh, does it change any of the historical facts though around it? Well, it does. does One it? historical remember. fact is how that much, the Doctor much? gives them the idea about the horse by remembering it from his own history from when he was a kid. How much is fact and how much is legend with the... Uh, I don't know. Did they ever find the giant wooden rabbit or whatever it was they came out of? <clears throat> the giant horse. That's it. I don't know if they did. I think it's is one of those things... Is this just a myth? Yeah, I... Hence the title, Myth Makers. Yes. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Which, well, which immediately so it's not you... historical then is it no it's not the whole story, yeah well that's what I'm saying <laughs> well the whole story is recounted in is it the Iliad or right. is it the uh... one of those big wordy books yeah so I mean books Mark do you know about this <laughs> what yeah, time? I know so many, Mr. I know so many word yes oh, we'll go and fetch he's on another podcast so we can't <laughs> yeah, okay. we can't get him for this one I thought you were going to send me upstairs to fetch your missus. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, that other podcast they're recording upstairs? <laughs> that would be the one. The more we interesting Crossover one. podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should send two of our team upstairs and get two of their team down here. That would be wacky, man. Oh, my God. We've got listeners and we're talking crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some things don't change. <laughs> 
What were we saying? The doors are blown off, myth makers. Is yeah. it even... I mean, uh, is it even historical? How much of that was fictionalised by Homer? Must have been loads. Yeah. yeah. So, so they've... Well, but what they've done here, you're Doctor Who fans will point to the Time Meddler and say that's pseudo-historical on account of the fact that you've got science fiction elements in an historical setting. But is the Myth Makers not the pseudo-historical because it's got, you know, basically presenting to the children as real history something that might not have even happened? Uh, this was uh, Cotton, Donald Cotton, did this. Yes, Donald he did Cotton. the gunfighters as well. Yep, that's is right. Is the OK Corral a, 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 a true Oh, gunfighters is completely fictionalised. I mean, the town that it took place in, which was... Tombstone? Anybody? Tombstone is red t- brick terraced buildings, just like you'd get on a social housing estate in Britain, apparently. Right. I mean, it was... The, o- <laughs> <clears throat> the OK Corral existed. They right. needed corrals to put their horses in. But I don't think there was ever a gunfight there, certainly not one involving all the protagonists. No. That, so I'm just know, wondering where, tells where that story came from, because... Uh, you well, know, it's just a Western legend, it, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I mean, again. you've got loads of families fighting each other. You have it in Devon, for goodness sake, if you look in the history books. You know, with We're shotguns. in Devon, by the way. I'm, that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. But, uh, I'm just telling the listeners. Oh, they I'm might sorry. think we're somewhere else. They must know we're in Devon, surely, through the accents. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Sorry, I know none of us have got an accent apart from UGR. And, uh, My accent's not Well, the Devon. episode is that's called Past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Blue Box Podcast. Um, <laughs> yes, the master. I keep saying, don't I? That doesn't really give anything away. But the OK Corral, okay, and the and the yeah. gangs are fighting, and the, well, and the families are fighting. Certainly, Wyatt some Earp, of it's some of it's on historical record. Billy the Kid, Wyatt, but all these not all of it. And I think I think it's one of those things where a lot of that has been fictionalised to beef up the legend yeah, of the people definitely. involved. So that's not really an historical idea. So did they, uh, Donald Cotton again is writing what is ostensibly an historical story, but what is actually just a story. It's a legend. A le- yeah, a myth. Even. <clears throat> yeah. It's just a bit of fun in an historically right. potential setting. And I would champion that as being the best one. Of all the historical stories. Not the pseudo-historicals, but of the historical se- uh, series. Of, uh, right. Yeah, without the science fiction element. You would say it's the best one. Yeah, definitely. <gasps> the Crusade for me. Yeah, I found it a bit dull. Really? Yeah. Oh, I just love it. Yeah. Are we getting to the Crusade now? No, we've passed the Crusade. Have we? Well, I was kind of looking at... <laughs> we've got this crazy <laughs> list in wow. front of us. You can, anybody can look at the list at any point and say you have not mentioned that one. Um, well, what, what, why is... The Crusade... Tell me why you I, like it so much, because it's... The Crusade? Yeah, yeah. It's like Shakespeare. Okay, it, I mean the wordage is great, the acting's great. There's there's well, lots of great words, stuff about it. I just found it a little the... bit dull. I think the subject matter just didn't interest me. Well, no, see that's why I think it is great about it because the subject matter, as well as the language that he's using, does match Shakespeare. I mean, you've got this whole thing about. I mean, I know it's lost after the third episode, but you've got you've got on the one hand Barbara's story as she falls into you know the wrong side of the lines and gets trapped in amongst you know the infidel. And then you've got Ian, who's off trying to be brave, and he also he gets uh, kidnapped, captured, and you've got also the story of Richard trying to give his sister away. Mm. In order to bring an end to the war, you've got this hero character mm. who's not only flawed, who thinks it's okay to sell his sister, but also the hints that he actually has sexual designs on his sister himself. 
And at the same time, he's the one that we remember from history as being the big hero on horseback fighting the good fight. But here he is being a politician mm. and giving quite a lot away as a politician as well. I just think the subjects that it addresses, and not just the historically important ones, but the way it tells the story through the characters as well, I just think it does a really brilliant job. I just absolutely love it. It does, actually. I, I don't disagree with that. It just didn't float my boat, I don't think, yeah. personally. But it's called Doctor Who, the series. What did William Hartnell do in this that was Doctor Who? How do you mean? Uh, what 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 was his part in this? Remind me. Cause well, that's remember. my point. Up until um, a certain point, Doctor Who didn't get involved in history. He was just there as a witness. But his mates were. All his friends were totally involved. So, Well, yeah, except they never in the end had any influence. Barbara mm. just got kidnapped and escaped. Ian got captured and got freed. They didn't actually influence any of the historical events. I mean, that's my point. I mean, I was going to leave the crusade behind. Okay. As much as I love it, it is, we it is, got it is really good. It is great. I've watched yeah. it and I think it's really, really good. But we but don't have it time just to wasn't talk my, about everything. You know. we've got, uh, we're still in William Hartnell and we've got to but get to... It's what I really want to get to is yeah. the new series. <clears throat> wow. This is part one, then. Yeah. <laughs> well, Not quite. I was hoping to... Well, like... moving it on, I really like The Highlanders as a book, as the target book. That's all I know about. Well, I've uh, seen also a reconstruction of it, and I love it too. Hmm. This is where I was coming to. You get to the point eventually where your historical stories that they're telling, things like the massacre, maybe, that actually try to tell you something about history, get left behind. And eventually you get into a position whereby your historicals are things like the smugglers and the highlanders that, yes, okay, may address address a certain historical event. I mean, um, the Battle of Culloden is what happens in the very first scene of the Highlanders, and then you leave the historical event behind and basically you're just telling a story that involves mm. some people who talk a bit funny. It's a bit but it's a, brilliant. Is it, it is. I mean, it's, would it be true to say that with these purely historical stories, it gets the writers basically just doing story, story, story? Exactly. That's what's so great about Which them. doesn't tend to happen now in the same no. way, does it? No. The Highlanders All the sci-fi of... elements become devices by which to move the story on as opposed to... Yeah. And that's yeah. where we're going, obviously, because mm -hmm. obviously what I want to bring up next is, well, actually, I mean, <clears throat> you can mention the abominable snowmen. That takes place in history. But it has no relevance whatsoever, so we'll move past that. It takes place in the 1930s, then, Lee. It was 1930s, right, okay. So, you know. I think it was the 1930s or... 30 years ago. Yeah, I suppose so. So if something was filmed in the 1970s now, that would be an historical for New Who. Absolutely. Father's Day was, technically speaking, well, How, how much older is Travis in uh, Web of Fear then? Pardon? Because the Web of Fear is in the 60s, yes? Yeah. Yes. That was supposed to be present day at the time of filming. So it? how old was Travis? How much older was he? That will tell you when it was. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was about right then. in yeah. his... 60s or 70s. Oh, right. he was, he, so it does make sense. Very old. Yeah. yeah, he was supposed to be like... I think it was 40 yeah. years are supposed to have passed. Right. And the Web of Fear is supposed to be set maybe a few years in the future, just slightly, whatever. Mm. We're not going to go into unit dating yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's a, you know, a mortality thing with me personally. I'm thinking anything be, you know, uh, beyond 1970, so 1960 on backwards, no, is anything, history. Anything that's set... <laughs> but anything in 1970 onwards, which is when I was born, I don't tend to look at it as history because it makes me right. really well, old. No, the thing is, <laughs> if you set it prior to... The present day, yeah. it's technically speaking and historical right. in history. If you said it last year, last year is in history. Mm. The history books have been written on last year. 
you know, that's history. Okay. It's happened, it's right. gone, it's history. So, you know, I, I've made this list with all yeah. the stories with, it's all right, take the list, I don't need it. No, I was <laughs> looking at the clock, actually. Oh, right, okay, I got, I'm looking at a clock behind you. We've got about 20 minutes, maybe, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. We're not really going to get to the new <laughs> series, unless we whistle-stop through... Okay, War Games yeah. is the first time they address an historical setting for about two and a half, three years, only it transpires that it's not really history at all. It's somebody who's mocked up history elsewhere. Uh, I mean, War Games, brilliant story. No, it's a time scoop, isn't it? Don't they actually scoop that? that... Well, they scoop the people, but they didn't scoop the locations. So oh, they okay. built it. Oh, that's interesting. And it takes place on an alien planet, Lee. It's not really taking place peop- in the First but World War. But the people War. are real, so they are historically real. Yeah, but the setting isn't. But they believe they are there. Did, did they the sc- might believe they are, but they're on an alien planet, Lee. Did the scoop belong to the ice cream man? <laughs> it was a, what was another Time Lord name? Yes. Come on, we've got 20 minutes. Stop trying to wind me up. Let's get to it. Keep going. Okay, then something weird happened with John Pertwee. <laughs> <laughs> Wurzel Gummidge? No. Not to do with his nose. Okay. <laughs> And yeah. not to do with his... What happened? ...companions and the Daleks, either. No, they wrote a story called The Time Monster. The Time Monster. The Time Monster? Yeah. The Atlantean one? Yes, because you thought I was going to go straight to the Time Warrior. I did, actually, you? yeah. Everybody always skips straight from yeah. the Highlanders to the Time Warrior. No, the Time Warrior came about because Barry Letts experimented with an historical setting in the story only for the last two episodes a few scenes earlier on with some incidental characters, experimented with a story because he knew that TARDIS, Doctor Who, was supposed to be about travelling time, and Barry Letts experimented with writing a story in which a portion of it would take place in history. And actually, it's because he thought that was not necessarily successful in the way it was realised on screen, but there's there's a direct correlation... We have a TARDIS going off in the corner of the room. It's <laughs> right, leave it, leave it's it. It's my phone. It's your phone? It's yeah. my phone. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, after, telling, off in a after oh. telling me off earlier. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, the Time Monster. They do two episodes set yeah. in Atlantis. Yes, which is mythical. Yeah, it's mythical, but it's also to a degree historical because he's sent them back to a time in the past and he's brought these characters. It's essentially Barry Letts trying to do something the Doctor Who hasn't done for five years, in that do something using the costumes and props from the costume department at the BBC, get people talking proper English, and all this kind of thing. Uh, hang on a minute. Um, isn't the uh, Underwater Menace set in Atlantis as well? But it's set there in the future or something. I don't know if it is. is I don't it? know if it is. I don't know it that well. Does anybody know when that's set? Because if it's set in the past, that again is uh, one that it we've would, missed. Yes, but that's right after the Highlanders, so it's... Not really relevant to what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm saying is Barry Letts here made a decision to do something that was relatively historical, yeah. leading on to something that actually then was historical, okay. and that's where the Time Warrior comes in. Yeah. And then you get Robert Holmes writing a Sontaran in the Middle Ages, lots of knights fighting each other, castles and kings, all this kind of stuff. Dodgy robots. Yeah, dodgy robots. Brilliant. It's all fun, great fun. Yeah. And it's <clears throat> a reinvention of... Doctor Who as a programme that can go into history because this is supposed to be a show about time travel mm. and going into history is something that should be just really it obvious is. and the programme forgot 
how to do it or even but to do, you, do it. But do you think by bringing the Time Warrior in, it, it suffers a bit with the historicals? Because it is an I Spy book of history, that particular episode, isn't it? That, that story set in medieval England. There's no one famous in it. I mean, you've got a baron, some oh, baron yeah. somewhere. Got Don um, Cotton in it. Who, sorry? Dot Cotton. Dot Cotton's in it's it. has got Boba Fett in it. <laughs> Boba really? Fett's in it, yeah. Hal the Archer, that's Boba yeah. Fett. No way, man. <clears throat> way. Jeremy Bullock. Yeah, way. Yeah, way. <laughs> well, well, well. There you are. Go on. But I don't know. Simon has now looked up the underwater menace and he can confirm well, that. Well, no, I can't confirm. But um, <laughs> it does look quite futuristic, actually, looking at the synopsis for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it can't be Atlantis. It certainly doesn't. The, under the impression that it was something to do with Atlantis in the future, come back and then get sent away again or something. Oh, well, there's there's okay. a scientist called Zaroff. Yes. Who, Nothing in the world can stop me now. Give the impression it's <laughs> futuristic, doesn't it? They probably didn't have mad scientists with um, <laughs> what are they called? You know, medical couches with syringes in the arms and stuff back at the time. With terrible, of the ancient terrible German accents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, okay, so yeah. Time Warrior is... Does it suffer it's by, being, in history, by being it's slim not, in its concept? Yeah, yeah, and then for a few years you've got occasional stories, like Pyramids of Mars, and uh, Talons of Wang Chiang, and Horror Fang Rock, that are set in historical settings, but yeah. again, have not really got anything to do with history, except as a milieu, as a backdrop to the story. Which is nice. I really like that. And how many, how many of you watched Talons of Wen China and went, do you know, I really want to watch something else or read something about that era? Because I did. Yeah. I instantly started reading Sherlock Holmes mm. after that. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I well, obviously watched it in the 80s, not in the original run. But uh, yeah, I, it influenced me to go and look up that era, that period. Even oh, though that's it was pseudo. a good thing that it does. Yeah, I think so. I think, just, I think that's when Doctor Who's doing history at its best, actually. When it's not trying to get too involved with it not trying to take the characters and the situation so seriously that it becomes dry and it becomes a lesson, but when it's actually just using the historical backdrop as a background to tell a story. And, oh, you know, if you set it in history, you will not just use the backdrop, but you will use certain trappings of the backdrop as well within your story. There's a wonderful, wonderful sequence in the time warrior where there's an attack on the castle and john pertwee's making stink bombs and throwing them at the soldiers <laughs> and there's this great big grin on his face he's having a whale of a time it is, it's yeah. fantastic it is funny but it's also you know in a strange way he's making stink bombs but the attack on the castle is you know a, not a realistic representation of what happened back there but it gives you a little morsel of what life was like back then and so many of the other scenes there did this nice scene with sarah jane in the uh Cellar, yeah. yeah, the kitchens in the mm. cellar with the, you know, the woman that they, yeah, you know, get yeah. to cook the food and it's brilliant, it's beautiful, and you know, ultimately, this is where I was going with this podcast, and we've got about ten or fifteen <laughs> minutes now to get to it, but the new series when that came back, Rusty Davis took that template of those stories of the ilk of the Time Warrior, and Talons of Wang Chang, with historical backdrops that weren't, that weren't so over-detailed and so over-presented that they swamped the story and used that. And this is what you were talking about, Simon, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But you don't like it so much, then. <clears throat> what? The modern historical stories. Well, the celebrity I, historicals, as they've sort of transpired. Yes, this is it. I mean, the ironic thing is, as I say, I, I never used to look for, um, have a certain disinterest towards the purely historic historical stories because you always look for the sci-fi element when you're a kid. But actually now, it's almost disappointing 
When there's a sci-fi element. When there's a sci-fi element, yeah. Because you, you just think he just goes everywhere finding these sci-fi things. Yeah, that's um, kind of... Although they did get told to do that. Right. I do believe. I mean, I think they did that in the first series anyway, deliberately, because it was their policy in the first series to make sure that people understood what Doctor Who was. And I think putting them back into history without a science fiction element would perhaps have been too scary to do in the first series. But then I think it was Jane Tranter said to him after the first series was going out, she said, you've got to pull your socks off a bit on historicals and make them more science fiction, essentially. It's interesting. There are a few, actually, that are cheating historicals, aren't there? Cheating historicals. Cheating historicals, I call them. Mark's had almost nothing to say this episode. They're they're not pseudo-historicals. Okay, Okay, I'm going to come back to you in a second, Lee, because I'm just going to say to Mark, we're coming to you after this. You're the very next point, (laughs) okay? After this break, after this commercial break, we're going <laughs> so you back just to you. Think about it for a minute. Cheating historicals, right? I mean, Carnival of Monsters is one where they land on a boat where they think they're in the 1920s. Enlightenment is another one where they land on a what they think is a boat again in the 1920s. Mm. I have these um, on my list. They're in the But they're, they're really nice because I watched Enlightenment the other night, actually, and I was really impressed with the brand new version of it. There's a few dodgy CGI moments, but it's really quite nice. Well put I together. I why they CGI'd it. They should have left it as it no, was. No, no, that no. One had it, nice I liked face. it. I thought it was really good. But. Really? Yeah, and it's just that moment when they flip up the board, dashboard thing, and, and, and there's lots of buttons on it and twinkly buttons, and Tegan's going, hang on a minute, that's that's futuristic. I thought we won a 1920s boat. <coughs> at the time, I actually watched that and thought, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good job that glass was there. Just missed my head, Simon. He's um, <laughs> <laughs> talking about his little head. <laughs> Oh, and there he goes again. But uh, no, I thought it was really, really well, well put together and well done. And it caught me out because I didn't know what what to expect. Nowadays, uh, you know, you know what's coming mostly. I mean, they do keep secrets quite well. But with the Charles Dickens, you know it's going to be Charles Dickens with an alien, I Churchill with an alien, uh, um, you know, you somebody else with an alien. With the uh, science fiction element in the modern historical stories, is they have disguised it quite well as something like a ghost or a werewolf. I mean, it was a ghost in the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that worked really Werewolf well. in the second series. Mm. Third series, you have the witches. And so what they do is disguise it as something, whether you think it works or not, Lee's shaking his head now when I mention witches. No, the Karenites are terrible, but anyway, that's another oh, thing. Oh, but mm. what about the special effect Karenites at the end? Even worse. Okay, fair enough. I quite like the Shakespeare, but it's within context. No, like the Shakespeare, don't get me wrong, just didn't like the monsters. Okay, fair enough. But my point being that the science fiction element in a lot of these historical stories is quite heavily disguised as something that people of those times would be mythologizing about anyway, but but would recognize as being of their wider scope of their knowledge. I think with the unquiet you know dead, um, <clears throat> although you have got the that ghosts, fanta- yeah, you yeah. have got that fantastical element with the ghosts or whatever they what are they called again? Oh, the gelf, the gelf. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you still get a little slice of what life was like back then. You've got the character Gwyneth. You get to see her life, and it just. I, I really like that, and I yeah. thought... Well, that's what most of these stories have done, I think. Yeah. They've given you... I mean, Pfizer Pompeii, another great example. Mm. You get the family. The modern historicals <laughs> always give you a slice of history, a piece of mythology, and a whole lot of fun. Can we fast forward just to get it in? It's um, all right, yeah. To Vin- ten minutes. Vincent and the Doctor. Oh. Which, which I absolutely loved, and I thought the sci-fi element was the weakest bit in it. Definitely, yeah. 
the Definitely. creature was just there was there was something about that space episode chicken. that I just thought was what was it space chicken space chicken I thought was genius the Crefeas. Crefeas, yeah. it was a genius episode are we all in agreement it's a very good episode or not yes yeah I mean, it was I, very I, well I really that. it was beautiful yeah. but you're right when the space chicken turned up I thought we don't need this actually we no. really don't need this what we could have had was something whereby we think he's seeing something and in fact he isn't seeing anything at all no, and that would have been and the lovely. doctor's chasing nothing you know yes. that would have been great just yeah. to you know yeah. I think realistically speaking though we wouldn't have had that story at all without the space chicken they didn't need to do a space chicken did they let's, let's no they didn't but you know what I'm saying You after, at some point a compromise has to be made space chimp you at, can at you some can... point Stephen Moffat had to turn around and say I feel like space chicken tonight <laughs> Oh, God, that's uh, terrible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've had space pigs, I suppose. And space... That's too many syllables. Surely it, should, surely it should be, I feel space chicken tonight. <laughs> okay, anyway. I might have got the syllables right, but I got everything else wrong. So wrong with that. But here's the point. At some point, you have to make the compromise. You know, it is, and I don't know, it's not a contractual obligation, but they have been told. Yeah, and certainly Stephen uh, Ross T Davis was. Whether that still stands, but I would assume so. But I would have assumed that the remit they gave to um, Richard uh, Curtis, Richard Curtis mm. for um, Vincent and the Doctor was pseudo historical monster Vincent Van Gogh. So you know he wrote the monster in right from the start. I mean, you're saying in an ideal world the monster wouldn't have been in it, but I don't think the people making that episode would even have ever considered not having the monster in it. It's not a situation where they said, well, should we do it without the monster? That might be better. They just never thought that. Okay. I'm just, I know they've, they've chosen like a farm animal because it's like uh, an animal that, in fact, even when the doctor speaks to it, you don't hear it talk back in cluck, no. do you? He doesn't talk back and go, hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm a bit scared. You know, it doesn't talk back, but he, he does talk to the this chicken. It's going to go down as the weirdest episode ever. He does talk to so a I'm chicken. Just laughing and oh, Mark yeah. and I are just and hanging out. He talks to a chicken and he speaks baby, for goodness sake. Did you, you, brought, you two have planned this. You've brought this episode <laughs> up so he can do the chicken impersonation. No, no. You have. Yeah. He's bright red, and that's not just because it's hot outside. <laughs> No, seriously, though. I mean, he's talking to chicken. You didn't need a chicken. You could have changed the the, the creature. All I'm saying is there are lots of dumb creatures out there. What could you have changed it to, Lee? Um, I don't know, something that's... Other farmyard impersonations you'd like to <laughs> present to us? Maybe a walking horse. Go on, then. <laughs> Hello, Doctor. <laughs> but, um... yeah, that was a horse. <laughs> I never said that was any good. Oh, I know what they should have done. They should have, they should have made it into a space bungle. Zippy. Don't do bungle. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he's going to get that wrong. Yeah. A space zippy. Come on. What? Come on with he a space zippy. Do it doesn't do it to command. I don't. He does it when I command him to do it. <laughs> what, are you the master? No, actually, he's the master. He's the one with the recording equipment. <laughs> do zippy, you will. He's the baby. one who's got our sound. Why'd sound you cut it? your bloody ear off? <laughs> <laughs> Right, but, right. <laughs> we've fault, got JR. we've got what five minutes. There is something really specific I wanted to bring up about what in. the modern series has done with historicals. Yeah, they've mashed it into a pulp. They have. That's exactly what I was going to say. High I five. wasn't going to phrase it quite like that. No, low five because you don't mean what I mean. <laughs> I do. Do you? Go on, explain to me, and I'll tell you if that's true. Girl in the fireplace. <laughs> what happened with the girl in the fireplace? Was girl in the fireplace a, 
uh, modern historical story? Yes. It's got a flaming great spaceship in it. Yeah, only one half of it. Yeah, but it's set on the flaming great spaceship. There are robots and everything. Yeah, that half is. Right, that's exactly what I'm saying. Stephen Moffat doesn't do a standard historical setting where he sets the TARDIS down, sticks a monster into the mix, has them running around and chasing it, and sorting it out. Stephen Moffat... Apart from Vincent, of course. <clears throat> well, this is Richard Curtis. Okay. Stephen Moffat likes to throw not just the TARDIS, but a whole lot of other stuff into the mix. Mm. Let's, let's kill Hitler. Mm. That is set. I mean, the whole episode, essentially, is set in Hitler's office in Nazi Germany. But the story has got nothing to do with the historical setting whatsoever. They're just there. They just say, let's kill Hitler at the start so they can put themselves down in that office. That could have taken place anywhere. It's about the Doctor. It's about Riversong. It's about a robot. Yeah. It's about nothing else. This is what Stephen Moffat does. Stephen Moffat has taken the historical, picked it up by the scruff of its neck, put it on the other side of the door and said... Thanks very much, but, you know, you've had your time, and shut the door after it. I think you're right, and the last kind of episode, The Wedding of River Song, where time is all mashed all up. All the time happening at once. Yeah, yeah, is a prime example of him just saying, That's like, let's chuck it all into the bowl and whip it up, and yeah. uh, there you go, you've got a really, you've got a horrible looking trifle to eat now, guys. Well, it is, that is Stephen Moffat <laughs> saying, this is the ultimate of what I, <laughs> oh my god. Was it, you have to explain good. to me what the sexual innuendo is in the sentence, you've got a trifle to eat. <laughs> come yeah. on, guys. Come on, You're chaps. You're peeing yourselves. No. <laughs> it's innuendo That's in your head. I don't know what I've said. I think my metaphors are rather good. We'll be talking about whippets next. <laughs> the thing is, the wedding of River Song is Stephen Moffat taking his science fiction, his little bits yeah. of history, taking everything and throwing it all into a blender. And you're right, coming out with a trifle, mm. because that's what Stephen Moffat does. He doesn't do science fiction stories, much as people might want him to do, because he's now the showrunner on Doctor Who. He doesn't do science fiction stories. He doesn't do historical stories. He doesn't do romances. He does stories where you take all the elements, throw them all in together, and see what hits the wall and sticks. Exactly. And you could get all that in one minute and of I screen love it. time. Do you know what? <laughs> I absolutely love that. Wedding of River Song, I think, is a fantastic episode. It's one of the most enjoyable episodes I think there's been since Doctor Who came back. In fact, probably the most enjoyable, to be perfectly honest. Just to, just to sidestep a little, that, uh, with that particular episode, it does yeah. annoy me when they say all time is running at the same time. It is not at all. You know, maybe go back to our Time Paradox <laughs> um, podcast, but it isn't. It just simply isn't. If you're, if it's well, running... No, of course it can't be. It can't be. Otherwise, you'd just be stopping dead. Yeah, exactly. So it isn't, is it? It's sillinessly. That's I don't, my point. I don't like it. Well, I do. I think it's great. Well, we talked about this before, so we shouldn't go on about yeah. it. But, you know, if that's they, how I think the time All they needed war... to have said was uh, it runs for an hour and clicks back again. That I'd have, believed, I'd have believed that. And then you could throw all of history in there, and it would just would, would have made sense to me. It gets to a certain point and then clicks back again, like well, Groundhog Day. Well, I think Day. it depends how seriously you're taking the expression all of time happening at once. Very seriously. Maybe the book, they're just the using about that time as travel. an expression to try mm, and explain so. what is happening that's otherwise quite difficult Layman's to explain. Terms. But you see, um, with Stephen Moffat, you also have a little bit of this in some of the other stories as well, don't you? Where yeah. some of the other writers now, and I mean, Curse of the Black Spot, slight example, starts off on a boat, ends up in a spaceship. I mean, some of the writers in series six, particularly, were taking some of the tropes of earlier Stephen Moffat stories, like, for instance, the spaceship and the palace at 
wherever it was mm. in um, Versailles. Was it Palace of Versailles? Yes, in Girl in the Fireplace. So what they were doing, some of these writers were taking some of the tropes of Moffat and saying, right, we have a story here. We have a pirate ship and a spaceship. Yeah. And in the God Complex is a prison floating in space decked out to look like a 1980s hotel, which, of course, is, you know, relatively speaking, historical setting. So what what's happening now is you've got the other writers also mm. doing sort of Stephen Moffat-like things, mm. which I like. So he's flipping on his head. He's getting yeah, historical and just making it something completely different. And in fact, he's taken everything and made it completely different. If, for, if by any chance, the next showrunner, if we've got one, becomes somebody like Mark Gatiss... Please be Toby Whithouse. All right. Where do you think they'll take it? Because I know that Mark is a big history fan. Right, so if he was yeah. in charge, I reckon he'd probably take it back. Still with a sci-fi element, but with a lot more kind of, uh, you know, Tom Baker hinch. Also, Mark Gatiss is a huge fan of the Pertwee years, I believe. Uh, yeah, as well as the Hinchcliffe years. Yeah, so you'd get uh, you'd get a very... I think with Mark Gatiss, you'd get a very trad Doctor Who. I mean, anybody want to come in and anybody care to argue? He's a huge argue? horror fan as well, isn't he? So yeah, know, so... Get a, yeah. <clears throat> quite a good sprinkling of that chucked into the mix as well. What about Chris Chibnall's? Um, they're, they're basically, this. if you believe what you read on the internet, there's three names in the frame. Chris Chibnall's like another mm-hmm. one. Right, I don't, I, I can't even imagine what he would do because I don't... I don't really get a flavour. I don't think anybody really I don't get knows, a flavour no. from him. Flavour's a good word, mm. Simon. I mean, he was around in the 80s, moaning about 80s Doctor Who, so we have to assume that he's a big fan of 70s Doctor Who as well. Right. Mm. So at least he won't see any historicals in the 80s. Well, you've got Toby Whithouse, <laughs> and this would be my choice. What about Toby Whithouse? Toby Whithouse, who wrote Being Human, and who's written The God Complex and School Reunion, mm. and who also wrote a series called No Angels, which was a about the turn of the decade, 1990s, 2000s, I suppose, Ran for three series, Channel Four, late night medical thing about three nurses in a like a flat share, a bit like being human, I guess. Right, fantastic series, yeah. just really good dramas about people. Okay, mm. but he's mm. also a big genre fan, which is why being human is become his baby and is his big thing. But does uh, dramas about people with also genre trappings. But I like Stephen Moffat, who likes to do... I mean, if you look at coupling and if you look at things like joking apart, Stephen Moffat likes to do the twisty-turny personal relationships. Toby Whithouse does a lot more straightforward, but also... And I hate to say this about Stephen Moffat, but while Stephen Moffat's are kind of on-the-surface personal relationships, Toby Whithouse gets really to the core of what makes people tick. Mm. I mean, you must have all seen Being Human, and Being Human... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the... brilliant thing about being human is not just the tone that he takes but also the fact that you actually feel for all these characters even though they're ghosts and werewolves so, and so vampires we'd, essentially we'd be rewinding to the rtd years to, well, to, an, to an extent I, yeah but see the one i think rusty Ross davis did it he did yes he did big personality dramas but he did them in a kind of a cartoon style yeah mm. slightly over the, kind of over the soap top soap opera yeah. yeah i think toby whithouse would be like the antithesis of the rusty davis in that the slants the stories take would be maybe fairly similar, but the angle that he put on it would be a lot more down-to-earth and realistic, yeah. yeah. And the best thing about the God Complex were the people in it, were yeah. the characters. You know, I but really the God like the Complex and Vampires of Venice and his forthcoming Wild West. Did he do Vampires of Venice? Yeah, and he uh, also did School mm, Reunion. Yeah. Oh. But, I mean, also shows, and because he's a fan of the series anyway, and because you know he's done Being Human and whatever, it also shows he can do the genre stuff as well. 
So I think while it might take a back seat with him, like it did with Rusty Davis, because his strongest suit certainly wasn't the science fiction, but mm. people still loved that and enjoyed that. I mean, can you imagine being human set in the TARDIS on primetime BBC One at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night? That'd be great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that just be the <laughs> most amazing series on Earth? I'd love that. Yeah. It's about time we got back to that as well. Well, essentially, the, you know, the vampire character in Being Human is the Doctor. I'm not yes. saying, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not saying that mean. vampire characters based on the Doctor. No, what I'm what saying is, yeah. if you, you know, transposing the one idea to the other idea, yeah. the Doctor is essentially space vampire. Okay, so if Toby kinds, was in charge, how would he take us, where would he take his historicals to? Venice? <laughs> I don't know, but we've got onto a wholly other subject and we've been going on for far too long anyway. Right, so I think okay. we should say goodnight now. Good night or good morning, depends on what time you listen to the podcast, doesn't it? Ciao bella. <laughs> That's Before creepy. we go, uh, yes. if anyone wants to get in touch, because we've had some great emails. and Twitter If anybody response, wants to get in touch, then just get in touch. You've heard the other podcasts. <laughs> you know the address to send your emails. <laughs> What if they're listening for the first Please time, JR? Please get in touch. Please <laughs> write to We've us. We've touched a nerve here. Yeah. Strap him down. Please, Mark. <clears throat> if you'd like to get in touch, <laughs> you can email us at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. You can check us out on Facebook, where you'll find us under Blue Box Podcast. We are a page. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Please follow me on Twitter, please. He's desperate for more followers. How do they follow you on Twitter? Uh, just find me on Twitter. You know what my name is? It's simple as typing it into yeah, it's yeah, not if you just find... your name, though, is it? Because there's an underscore. Oh, you just want me to get me to say it, don't you? The thing yeah. is, nobody ever follows me on Twitter because of this, so there's no point. You can find us on Facebook. Right. You can email us at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Yeah. And if you really like it, please follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it for tonight. I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And I was Mark. Good night. Good night.